You've tuned in to the first anniversary episode of the Roundtable Podcast, Part 1, which pretty much implies there'll be a Part 2 coming along before too terribly long. So enjoy yourselves. everyone, I'm Brian Humphrey. And I'm Dave Robison. And you're listening to the Roundtable Podcast. Each week on the Roundtable Podcast, Brian and I invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. That's right. And then we dig into it, harvest some soul fragments, leash the demons, bring dead literary lizards to life, <laughs> have uh, the idea blessed by sequined love nuns, and eke out what we like to call <laughs> literary, literary gold. gold. That's right. <laughs> sequined love nuns. That's badassery, baby. <laughs> oh, man. Man, uh, well, dude, before we get into all of that awesomeness, and oh my God, it will be so much awesomeness, um, this is our first opportunity that we've had to actually be on the mic at the same time after your book came out. I know, it's so exciting. That is badass. Give, give everybody the, the, yes. the, 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 the 122nd elevator pitch for your book and where they can get it. Oh, good Lord. Okay, so the title is Sense Memory. The book is about a, uh, a young man who begins having memories of murder. Um, he, he, senses, he, he has a sense memory, some, a smell, a sight, a sound, something that triggers the memory. And, uh, and then when he actually sees himself kill his own sister um, is when he decides that it's time to investigate. And it takes him out to L.A. from Colorado. Um, and he, he starts scouring the streets of L.A. to try to figure out uh, whether it was actually him who killed his sister or if he's somehow receiving someone else's memories. Oh, wow. Um, so that's Very that's cool. the that's the lowdown, yeah. The, and that's out on for, Amazon right now. That is out on Amazon right now. Um, it's two ninety nine, and there will be some free days, and I'll be uh, tweeting that as they come up. And then the audio version that I recorded um, should be coming out within the next week or so. Um, and uh, I just am doing some some final finishing touches on that. Oh, but wait, and that's more. that'll There's be free audio on audiobooks. Very cool. Yes. Very, very cool. Dude, congratulations. I remember reading that many years ago, actually. Uh, and yeah. I know that's been sitting in your in your drawer, and you pulled that out, and you put it out there. And and you did the patio right. book. You did it all. That's badass. Yeah. And it was all pretty much inspired by this podcast. So I have you to thank, Dave. Well, at that, and I'm, I'm betting Nathan Lowell might have had something to do with it, too. Definitely. Right? Yeah. 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 He he was definitely a mentor during the process and, and kind of got lit the fire under me to pull the book out of the drawer and do something with it. So well, on behalf of everybody, all the fans, all the listeners, all the podcasters of the world, dude, congratulations. That is awesome. Thank you. And Thank you very much. Speaking of awesome, let's continue the awesome vibe uh, yes. and bring our bring our guest host back on the line, shall we? Let's do it. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, all the way from San Francisco, California, author of, uh, uh, oh God, Lamb, uh, uh, A Dirty Job, um, so much awesomeness, something involving sequined nun love nuns, uh, uh, amazing tales, uh, satire, humor, and delight all around. Please welcome back to the big chair, dear friend. Friends, Mr. Christopher Moore. Chris, thank you, sir, for coming back and workshopping a story with us. This is awesome. My pleasure. Now, Chris, I, I gotta wonder. Um, you know, you 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 have you have 
books that have been optioned. Uh, you're you're clearly a creative, visionary individual. So I'm wondering what, what what's going on in your head these days. Do you have do you have events coming up? Is there stuff coming out? Tell tell our listeners what's what's on the desk of Christopher Moore. You know, I'm sort of in that weird, I don't have anything to pimp stage. Um, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm at a loss. I just finished uh, and sent in a manuscript for a book. It's a, it's my second uh, Shakespeare sort of inspired book. Uh, I take my, the fool that I created for my book fool, uh, which is King Lear told from the point of view of the fool. Right. And I send him to Venice to interact with characters from Merchant of Venice. Oh my and, God. <laughs> And Othello, and and put all that together with, you know, a, a timeline from the late 13th century, and um, so that's nothing yet. That's I'm still waiting for you know to hear from my editor on that. And Sacre Bleu, my my book about the impressionists in Belle Epoque, uh, Paris, came out in paperback in October, I think. So I'm just in that state of oh my god, I don't have a job because I don't know. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> this this is that panic stage of authorship is that yeah, really- i know i kind of know what my next book's gonna be but i don't have anything to sell anybody other than you know they can <laughs> you know go to chrismore.com and and read crap about me or you know look me up on facebook well, and- speaking of soccer blue soccer blue you did a whole tumblr thing uh on soccer blue I, I just found that today that's like at soccerblue.info yeah, it's a it's a chapter guide. It, it was yeah. that that book is my most uh, sort of historically uh, informed thing I've ever done, and I did a lot of research on site for it, and spent a lot of time in Paris, which you know, hard job. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling your pain, I took a brother. Lot of pictures and and it's a book about art and painters, and so it's it it's by necessity. There's a lot of visuals that accompany it. Sure. And I couldn't. I, I was able to talk to the the publisher into putting color art in the book but i i couldn't put all of the art i talk about in the book so i put it online i put together a a chapter guide so every painting that's mentioned in the book as well as paintings that influence the painters that are characters in the book are are there and and historical sort of photographs and my impressions of places in paris and you know uh cities that i went to and towns i went to that say van gogh or monet painted in mm-hmm. Um, there are all those pictures are there and, and sort of my ramblings and, and then we built it into a, a highly non-functional app for, for, uh, <laughs> for iOS, um, which I, I don't recommend anybody go get if okay, you're going to, nobody, nobody do that. Got it. <laughs> experience it go to the web and look at it because it's really a disaster in the in the uh iphone app but, oh, but uh, you've, you've got a you've got a reputation for doing exhaustive research on on many of your books have you have have you treated any of your other books as you have sacre bleu in terms of an online presence or, or access to this secondary and tertiary material I I haven't um, for for a number of reasons. I always do an uh, almost always do an afterword that sort of fills in the historical context. If it's a um, one of the three history books I've done, or the cultural context, if it's something like um, uh, Sequin Love None that takes place in a sort of exotic setting like Micronesia, but um, but that's the first time I've ever done an online sort of uh, adjunct to it, and it's and it's simply because the book was so visual. And and I, you know, very often I, I start to write a book and I don't know anything about the subject. And by the time I'm finished, um, I do. But but 
<laughs> if you want to learn something, teach it. Well, I, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, I did a book about, you know, about whale researchers and I don't know anything about whales, you know, except they were big <laughs> and wet when I started. And, and then by the time I was done, I could pretty much, you know, speak at a pretty high level about, uh, you know, marine <laughs> mammal biology. Um, and, and, but, but a lot of it's timing too. I mean, that, for instance, fluke, there would have been a lot of visuals and, and a lot of stuff to go into it, but digital, they weren't even using digital cameras in 2000, what was it, 2001 when I was researching that. Yeah. You know, the whale researchers were still using film cameras. We forget how fast this stuff moves. So, so you know, because Soccer Blue was about a visual medium, right? Uh, and I had pictures to add to it that couldn't have gone in the book. The, the book would have been 600 pages long. If, <laughs> which would have been badass, but I, I can see the limitations Yeah, it would have there. been about 75 bucks, too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Coffee table book. Yeah. And, and so, so uh, this was the first time. I don't even know. Um, you know, I, I, like I say, I've just finished the Shakespeare book. And I don't think there'll be an online um an online content other than you know i might put a few things of a uh, few pictures of venice but but okay. uh well that and that will be seen up at your website which is uh chrismore.com chrismore.com and uh, uh there's all sorts of links on that website uh to all of the other corollary stuff that you've got going on out there you've been very yeah, active also, yeah find me you can find me on facebook or on um on twitter uh by looking for the author guy all one all one word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about uh, conferences or conventions? Comic cons, fantasy cons, world con. Do you do you make those rounds at all? I'm you. I usually turn them down because I know I'm going to be on deadline. Honest oh, to yeah. God, I, you know they. they um, but dude, you're unemployed I now. I yeah I don't. <laughs> yeah now, yeah exactly. Now I can sure if someone would say you know can you be there next week I'm on it. Um, <laughs> But usually, you know, they they book them pretty far out in advance, and I'm I don't slip in and out of public mode very well. Mm, um, okay. I, I you know it it throws me out of my writing for a couple of weeks if I go four days to a conference. So it's not that I don't like doing them. I, I really like doing conferences. I just um, you know that's not my job. It messes with your mojo, job sure. Books, you know. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's right. good philosophy. Well, yeah. look, guys, uh, Chris, I'll make sure all of that whatever that was that we just talked about that that'll get into the liner notes you should just edit it at no promote uh, no no nothing i'm unemployed well uh, and and we'll, we'll we'll come up with something maybe just a nice a nice big calligraphic no something like that or something along those lines i don't know yeah that sounds good uh, but but for now let's let's take a short break let's let's take a pause we'll we'll give some time uh to a, to an awesome ebook maybe somebody will have an audio promo by then who knows oh. uh ooh hey uh, uh or another podcast or a fabulous kickstarter project cuz there's all kinds of awesomeness out there uh that we love to promote when we come back I propose we workshop a story. What do you say, gentlemen? Brilliant. I like it, too. All right, friends, you guys stay right where you are. Do not move. We will be right back. The U.S. government created Division 10 to track down mysterious flyers possessing technology beyond our own. Now, a corporation, Typhon System-wide, plans to steal alien tech from the grasp of the Division and they're willing to take down a president to do it. As Typhon's plans come to a head, something escapes from a burning building in New York City. Corporate mercenaries are on the way, and so are the black helicopters of Division 10, but there's another player in this game, 
and far higher stakes than control of a government or technology. The Flyers are back. Subversion, a science fiction adventure novel by John Miro. Conspiracies, spies, and aliens. In enemy lines, the lines aren't as clear as you think. Buy it now on Kindle. Learn more at servingworlds.com. And we're back, lords and ladies of the Roundtable podcast. And uh, today, Dave, yes, tell us who our writer is. Oh, Brian, our guest writer for this episode is a brilliant visionary who spent <laughs> his college years studying film and theater from the director's perspective. Now, he's directed as well as acted, uh, trotting the boards in numerous productions, including Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. Now, it was during that production that he met his lady love, who would one day become his wife, which is kind of freaky because he was made up to look like a bald, gold-skinned freak for the show. But, you know, everybody's got their own thing. Uh, now, he has recently had many brushes with delight and good fortune. Uh, for one thing, he is the father of a newborn son who is full of radiant joy and energy and super soldier formula, we're told. Uh, uh, he recently released his first book, Sense Memory, available on Amazon as an ebook and soon to be released in audio form on patiobooks.com. And he's one of the co hosts of the wildly popular Roundtable podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the writer's chair, because we're kicking him out of the co host chair, Mr. Brian Humphrey. Woohoo! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Woo! Big cheers all the way around. Now, now, Brian. Brian, first of all, dude, I'm not yeah. even going to say you know thank you. I just think it's awesome that we're going to be doing your workshopping, your story. Uh, but our mojo is all thrown off now. Okay, the the chi is all wrong. The shui right. is not funged. Uh, we've only got three, and we got to have four. So, Brian, as a special yes. treat to you, I wanted to make sure we had a full court of awesomeness when we workshopped your story. And and who else am I going to call but the man who achieves more awesomeness in a month than most people get done in a year? A man who has written games for Doctor Who, counseled the world on the ways of prepping chocolate bark, named his iPhone Victor Laszlo, is the host of Pseudopod, co-host of Escape Pod, interim host of Podcastle, who has made the world that much more awesome by adding to it with his collective commentaries, the Pseudopod Tapes Volume 1, available on Amazon.com. It's your literary and cultural delight. Please welcome a veteran guest host of the Roundtable Podcast, Mr. Alistair Stewart. Hello, chaps. How are you? Christopher Moore and Alistair Stewart. I think I can die after this episode. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And that, that of course, was our ultimate goal. Alistair, my friend, thank you so much for for stepping up and helping us workshop Brian's story, man. Absolutely my pleasure. Uh, Now, is there any other awesomeness besides the pseudopod tapes that the world needs to know about before we roll into this? Um, the pseudopod tapes is kind of the primary one at the moment. Uh, there's there's some other stuff which I'm I'm working on, uh, but none of it is is quite ready to go just yet. I mean, as you saw from the blog post that went up today, I'm I'm doing quite a lot of stuff at the moment, and there's a there's another potential project further down the year, but I I don't want to kind of jinx it by naming it out okay. loud. So for now, it's it's all about the book. Mums the word. Awesome. And dear friends, if you have not made your way out to alisdarestewart.com, the man is all 
over the place, and he's he's like a like a Johnny Appleseed of cool. Awesome. All right, Brian, my friend. Yes. You know the drill, man. Three. Oh, no, wait. Boy. Five. Five. Five to eight minutes. Give us the title, the genre, the format. Uh, introduce us to the world if it's different from ours. Give us theme and tagline. Uh, introduce us to the characters. Uh, pro tag and and tag and then give us the basic story arc and we'll get into the workshopping vibe so my friend i'm i'm, I'm starting the timer i'm watching the oh clock. god <laughs> okay I'll, I'll, I'll try to speed through it as best i can it's all yours my friend all right the title is the dark circus of hamelin the genre is post-apocalyptic dystopian supernatural very possibly ya the hook is a young man born of the apocalypse must find his place between home in a cold dystopian reality and love in a whimsical illusionary death trap before both are lost to him forever. The protagonist is Isaac. He's 17 years old. He was born during the apocalypse, and there are no others uh, that are his age in the town. His love interest is Jezebel, a 16-year-old fiery and she's fiery and mysterious, and she is a true illusionist. The pseudo antagonist, and we'll get into that later, is Xander, aka the Equivocator, and he is a necromancer. The world. 17 years ago, the last war ended. 96% of the world's population was wiped out by an apocalyptic cocktail made up of nuclear and biological warfare, multi-strain, highly mutable viruses, and The Walking Dead, which was a result of everything before it. Those who were infected and survived emerged with either horrific deformities, for which they were promptly and humanely destroyed, or certain unexplainable powers for which they were promptly and humanely destroyed. The living dead continued to be the biggest problem after the war ended. Pockets of survivors fled to a region of what used to be Nebraska and built a safe haven called New Homeland, the pronunciation of which changed over the years to New Hamelin. One of the original settlers, Xander, contracted the virus after a bite on the leg. He didn't die nor mutate. Instead, he acquired the ability to control the dead. He then made a deal with the founders of New Hamelin that if he could rid the town of zombies, they would give him and his wife half the town's wealth. They agreed. When Xander had done what he promised, the founders decreed that anyone infected was a threat and those manifesting strange abilities were to be burned. Xander was spared a death sentence but was banished from the town and made to watch from the gates as his wife was burned, assumed to be infected, simply by virtue of her closeness to him. New Hamelin is now a thoroughly realized dystopian society void of any form of personal expression or personal freedoms. Act 1. Isaac's only real friend is Kara, a 12-year-old girl who idolizes him but is herself a spitfire with an impulsive nature. Isaac is repeatedly being brought before the council and disciplined because he covers for her. On Isaac's 17th birthday, as a punishment for his transgressions, he is assigned the most undesirable lifetime vocation in all of New Hamelin, the Torchmaster. It is now his duty to burn the dead, build the pyres, and set fire to traitors, infected, and anyone the council feels is out of favor. He is a forced executioner. Kara sees a man wandering outside the gates. Desperate for news of the outside world, she slips through a hole in the fence and runs to him. Isaac follows her. The man attacks Kara, and Isaac beats the attacker with a large stone, killing him. He lifts Kara and takes her back inside the gates. She has been bitten. Pinned to the undead man's chest is a poster for the Equivocator's World Wonders. 
The zombie is the advance man, and the circus is coming to town. The Founders' Council orders that Isaac build a pyre on the road in front of the main gates. On one side, he is to burn the advance man as a warning to the coming circus. On the other, he is to burn Kara as a warning to the citizens and a punishment for him for leaving the town borders. Act 2. The Equivocator's Circus arrives. Despite a town-wide lockdown, when a dark clown appears and stands in the ashes of the pyre just outside the gates, the children of New Hamelin walk to the gate as if in a trance and slip through the holes in the fence line that no one knew were there. Isaac is ordered to retrieve the children as the adults of New Hamelin cower in the main halls. At the circus, the children see beautiful elephants, zebras, lions, clowns, but everything is an illusion. As Isaac gets close enough to touch things, his vision shifts, and he catches glimpses of what they really are. The elephants have long lost their, their eyes, and rotting ribs are exposed. The zebras have legs of dead elk sewn on in place of their own. He runs into Jezebel, the enchantress. She is his age, and she is responsible for the illusion, though he doesn't realize this. The dark clown Xander appears and notices that Isaac isn't fully taken in with the illusion and pulls him into a dingy tent to find out why. They're interrupted and Isaac slips away and hides. Several men begin searching for him and as he continues to evade them, one comes close enough to brush against him and he realizes that they too are dead like the advance man. From his hiding place, he sees the children being taken through the fun house, but as more and more are guided in, none leave. He, await, he waits until dusk and returns to New Hamlin to report to the council what he saw and get their help to go back in force. The council locks Isaac in a prison, knowing that he has a manifested ability, obviously brought on by the virus, and as such, he will need to be burned. They gather the men of the town together and leave for the circus at nightfall. Act 3 Gunshots, shouts, and screams in the distance. A key is dropped into Isaac's cell from the high window. He hears a girl's voice hiss at him to take the key, open the cell, and come to the circus. When he gets to the circus, it's a ghoulish carnival of terrors. Men of the town are throwing down their money, shooting zombies in the gallery games, and dead women in torn dresses lead men to dark tents with stained bunks. The funhouse from earlier is now a madhouse of horror. Isaac rushes through, realizing as he goes that none of the townspeople can see what he can. He doesn't need to touch things like before to see what they really are, but he still has to be close. His power is growing, or the illusion is weakening. As he touches each man, it breaks the spell for that man, who then screams and runs back to the imagined safety of the gated town. But for some reason, or but for some, it is already too late. These hobble or crawl from bites and torn flesh that they couldn't feel until Isaac broke their illusion. Isaac accidentally touches one of the dead and it falls to the ground, actually dead. Jezebel joins Xander, staring at Isaac in wonder. Isaac, it seems, is a gainsayer. He has the ability to negate the magical field around him. A standoff ensues. As a last appeal, Xander calls forth the reanimated charred corpse of Kara, who was the one that tossed Isaac the key. Isaac is overcome with exhaustion and grief at the sight of her. He makes one last push, and Jezebel's illusion, illusions crumble. Kara is alive and unburnt. The entire burning had been an illusion. The wooden structure of the pyre stands at the road in front of the gate. The town's children all are sitting in the backs of carts, ready to be taken away to a new and magical life. The circus workers are indeed walking dead, but they sway, docile and fully under the control of Xander, who explains that he has taken what was promised him, and he is finished with New Hamelin. That there can be no place in his crew for a gainsayer, as his circus relies on magic to sell their act. 
Isaac must be left behind. Isaac returns to the gates of his ruined town and stops at the pyre, unburned, the poster of The Equivocator's World Wonders pinned to the, dead's ma- to the dead man's chest, flapping in the breeze. Isaac puts a finger to the wind. There is no breeze. He reaches out and touches the pyre, and the entire structure collapses in a heap of ash. When he turns back, the circus and all of the children are gone. Damn. Wow. So so this is the feel-good uh, uh, romp of the summer is what we're going for. On yeah, I decided to be really positive with this one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, Brian, that's that's awesome. Um, so what are you hoping to get out of this, this uh, next 40, 45 minutes of conversation? Well, I'm not married to anything. Um, the, the whole thing is based on the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Right. And so there's a lot of, you know, little nuances there. But um, for the most part, I think just, you know, story structure, there, there's, it's kind of a, he goes in, he gets captured, he gets out, he gets put in jail, he goes back, everything's an illusion, it's not really an illusion, it is an illusion. And so other than that, there's not a lot of necessarily character development. I don't really know how to foster the love interest with the girl. And so, you know, any of that kind of insight would be awesome. And then, um, you know, playing around with what kinds of things are going on at the circus. Cause I like the idea of the shooting gallery with the zombies, (laughs) but you know, what are, what are some other things that, that they might be able to do that would also help forward the story. Okay. Okay, cool. I think we can work with that. Um, Sweet. I, I will. I will go ahead and cover our ass, uh, uh, Brian. As you well know, uh, uh, what's going to come at you over the next forty to forty-five minutes is going to be a veritable torrent of awesomeness, uh, ideas spewing, what ifs flying like golden chariots through the sky. Uh, uh, the one thing to keep in mind always is that a this is your story, not ours. Uh, and anything and everything that we say for the next 40 to 45 minutes might be complete and utter bullshit. Uh, uh, so, so please take from it what you will uh, and uh, leave the rest behind like the dross that it is. Uh, cool with that? Absolutely. Excellent. Kind of thought you might be. All right, gentlemen, uh, it is our custom to take a single turn around the table uh, before we dive into this properly, just to just to showcase things that jumped out at us, uh, uh, sort of draw uh, circles around the things that we'd like to maybe discuss in greater depth, some first impressions, and also any questions of clarification that, that need to be asked to understand the Brian story idea fully. So we'll take a quick turn around the table. Uh, Christopher Moore, so lead us off, if you would, sir. What's your uh, What's your first impression of Brian's story idea? Uh, uh, any points that you're hoping to discuss? Any questions that you have? It's dark. Um, <laughs> Brian, how long How long do you see this? How when you When you're thinking about this, and sort of this this squishy parameters of 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 uh, of a book. Um, how long do you think it takes to how many pages do you think it takes to tell this story are you are we talking 100 150 is this uh you know what what's your your feeling on the length of this story um with with what i am looking at right now i would say probably between um 80,000 to 100,000 words so it's a it's a big book sure yeah oh, okay you know when you when you're talking about a ya book and you're talking about an adult novel the average for an adult novel is say eighty to one hundred and twenty, and but a YA book is a lot shorter, um, and that's why I asked: is yeah. is you know, you you're going to have to develop characters if it's if it's going to be eighty to one hundred thousand words. 
So, you know, okay. uh, other than that, I mean, I don't think in the first go-round I want to talk about the specifics of it. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it sounds like you've got a pretty good skeleton of a story to, to hang the meat on. Um, dead meat. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I get it. I, get, I see what he did there. <laughs> I, I, was, I was going there. But, um, but I, I don't, you know, now I know what parameters to think in. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll catch you on the next round around. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Very cool. Good start. Good start. Master Alastair Stewart, first impressions, yes, questions of clarification? Yes, of course. There are three or four things which leap out at me. Um, the first one, strangely enough, is Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with oh. this. Okay, all right. Uh, there is a speech <laughs> in Mission Impossible 3, which your description of this kind of perfect storm of, uh, of apocalypse really brought to mind. Um, it's delivered by Reggie, the Simon Pegg character who is the technician, he explains that he had, a, he had a professor at Oxford who explained that eventually the world would develop an anti-god, a piece of technology which would unmake everything in seven days. My first impression is, is very much that, firstly, I really like the idea of this you know, stack of pancakes of death. And the second is that you can make this simultaneously work for you and define the rest of the world. You can tie all of it together very easily. That you have limited nuclear exchanges, that you have dirty biological war weapons being deployed, and you can do something a little bit more interesting than zombies. In fact, you can do two things. Firstly, you can have, were, were it me, <coughs> I would be looking at two things. I would be looking at the animated dead, as you are, but I would be exploring what level of cognizance they have. And, I mean, this is something which you're starting to see a lot in popular culture at the moment. Things like Warm Bodies plays with it. Um, certain elements of The Walking Dead, uh, when it's not, you know, Rick wandering around a prison yard mumbling, um, <laughs> play with it. And you can, you know, the, the, the idea of the animated dead and how human they are, that's a really, really interesting ethical problem. And it also brings up something kind of gross. How does the town eat? Ooh. Because... If it's a kind of shattered post-apocalyptic wasteland, I'm, I'm guessing most of the dickies have closed. <laughs> and if you want it to be very, very unpleasant, zombies are an unlimited foodstuff. Oh, and my God. That's pretty much the worst job anyone can have. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the oh other God. thing which leapt out at me from, from that was you could tie three elements together. Right from the start, you could tie the zombies, you could tie uh, your protagonist, and you could tie Xander together. In that, the thing which actually ends the world, the thing which actually pushes the, the reset button on the blue screen of death, is something which inhabits people, a form of virus, something which alters people, alters their perceptions. And your protagonist, born as he is at the height of this stuff being in the air, Obviously, that's a, a pretty solid doorway into him having some form of very heightened ability as a result. Xander, as you say, also clearly has it. I, I love the take you have on the Pied Piper of Hamlin in here. Yeah. What if it's not zombies? What if everyone who is alive, as you implied, is infected to a greater or lesser extent? And taking that one step further... What if everything is a lie? What if the actual reveal you have at the end is not just this fantastically realized parade of horrors um, in, in the, the, the circus, but the town isn't anywhere near as healthy or as vibrant 
as it thinks it is. Okay. What do you think, Bri? Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that's a cool way to go, especially if it's something that is, um, you know, cause I, I, I see the town almost being more of the, the antagonist than Xander. Um, but if, if they're, you know, the, the, the founders are aware of how deep the infection goes, but they keep it um, under wraps for the rest of the, of the populace. So that the populace isn't quite aware. And those that do know that they're, they themselves are infected aren't saying anything because they'll be burned. Exactly. The other thing that you could do if, if you wanted to, you know, pull the sort of ending which would have Burgess Meredith on his knees weeping, saying, I had time! As he tries to put his glasses. <laughs> what if the town isn't one of the last bastions of civilization? What if it's a leper colony? And the circus mm. is coming there almost as, an, as almost humanitarian aid. That the town is actually very seriously ill. It's one of the places where this infection is focused. And your reveal at the end isn't just what the circus is actually doing, but the true nature of the town. Think it, and I mean that maybe cuts the the incredibly dark ending you have with something approximating hope a little bit. That you have the scales fall from this kid's eyes, and he realizes why he's been pushing against where he's grown up for so long because it's full of shambling monstrosities. I like that. This is this is like Australia. This 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 colony is like Australia, where the where the prisoners, where the where the damaged, where the broken are shipped, and to fend for themselves and to do as they will, what they can with whatever they've got. They don't care because they've been cast out. Is, is or that Nebraska our, present day? Or yes, exactly. You know, the Midwest is is very much like that. I being being living in Tennessee, I can tell you, I can see it from here. It's it's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> not pretty at all. Excellent. The, the other couple of things which, which leapt out at me were, um, if you've not looked at the paintings of Salvador Dali, do so. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Dali has a lot of stuff, I'm sure, which you'll find very, very useful for the descriptions of the circus. Also, um, I forget the exact issue, but there's a two-part story in Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which is a haunted house, and it's, I believe it's haunted by every fictional trope in America. And there are two gunfighters in there who are just endlessly drawing on one another. And the comic keeps coming back to these two guys. And by the end of the two issues, their legs, they have, they're just blowing chunks of meat off one another over and over and over. And your wonderful idea of the zombie shooting gallery, although I, I do kind of want them to make the, the tin noise and then turn in place once they <laughs> put me in mind of that. That would be the illusion that Jezebel is, right. is perpetuating. So, okay. Um, the, the other thing which leapt to mind, and I, I sort of hated that this did, if, if you wanted to, to push the cheese button good and hard, <laughs> you could legitimately have the, the Luke, I am your father moment. Because you have two really, right. well, you have three really interesting characters here, all with various levels of special abilities. But part of me does kind of look at Xander and go, what if I, you know, what if your hero, what if Isaac's his kid? Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I can, yeah. I can and, and it doesn't have to be a Luke, I'm your father thing. Uh, uh, we can go ahead and lead that right out there. Uh, uh, lead off with that. Have that knowledge be there so that the discovery when Xander returns, I mean, there's your big reveal and suddenly the tension for the second half of the book, story, whatever, 
is ratcheted that much more because not only now is is Isaac dealing with defending the town, which is a dystopian nightmare to begin with, uh, uh, but he's also fighting against his father, which but his father's doing evil things, or is he? Blah blah blah. So no, I can totally see that working. Yeah, and I I like the idea that <clears throat> um, Xander's coming back. You know, he he obviously has some um, legitimate reasons to come back and screw over the town, but. If he's also coming back to see if Isaac has manifested and if he has what he has manifested, sure, and it turns sir. out that it's it's something that is in direct opposition with with what he needs, and he has to leave him behind. It it can create a little more of that um, that conflict between father and son, and yeah, yeah, and, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Like that's that a little depth right quite there deeply into the mor- yeah. into the moral ambiguity, which you're you're layering in quite nicely. You have this, this crappy town. I mean, I, I'm, I'm from a crappy small town. A <laughs> you're from a crappy town. small island. Rock in the middle of the Irish Sea. You know, the, the one thing you do when you're in a crappy small town is you look for the bus stop and you dream of the day you can afford to use it. So you have that tension. You have the fact that, you know, you have this kid's dad coming back. And at the same time, you have the fact that this kid's dad's coming back, having left him. And this, and the, the very powerful thing of, well, it's a piece of shit, podunk little town, but it's mine, you know? So there's potentially some stuff to play with there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. Sure. I agree. For for myself, Brian, um, uh, first of all, <laughs> this is everything that I would expect from you and more. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the vision of the dark circus coming to town literally gives me a bit of a woody, which kind of scares me and disturbs me. <laughs> um, so that right there wonderful image wonderful iconic image archetypal image i mean there's a lot of layers of that dark circus coming to town that i would really love to see us explore in in a, in a much more deeper and aggressive way somehow to lash that that icon and that archetype into the story arc a little more tightly i i'm i'm kind of with with chris on the the question about the length of the story the story as pitched um, I don't see a hundred thousand words here. Um, I see, I see novella. I mean, the, the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Uh, uh, I, I can see a novella in here. Now, that's not to say that there's not more to be mined here. The world that you presented and that Alistair so adeptly uh, uh, tore back the flesh of and revealed the the the, the wormy underguts of goodness <laughs> underneath. Um, there's 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 stuff there to explore. But as it stands right now. Sure. I'm 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 seeing a, a powerful, potent novella, uh, but definitely novella. Now, a couple questions. Um, you have magic working here, uh, and you've got magic users with cool names like gainsayers and so on. Where's that coming from? How does that work? The internet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I um. Well, what I'm looking at is, you know, you've got Xander who obviously manifested really fast right after the apocalypse, right? So right. he's got this ability. And then he's banished and he's he's forced to go off on his own. Probably makes, de- you know, deals with other towns to rid them of their infestation or whatever. Right. Um, and, and builds himself up and, and creates this thing. So he's had a good, you know, 15 years or so to to name the things that he's coming across and that he's seeing. So Gainsayer would be a name uh, that that he came up with, not necessarily one that um, Isaac has ever heard of or had any 
you know, any clue that, that people were calling these by actual names now. So is Xander the only one that understands the magic system or is, is the world steeped in the, 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 the illusionist powers, the controlling dead powers that, I mean, is, is there a college? Is there a structure? Is there a societal element that is woven in that, that, is consistent across the board. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it does. And my feeling on it is no, that, that anyone who has an ability is self-taught the, you know, the, the majority of the world is gone. Um, it's just pockets of survivors. Some of them are, are roving cannibals. And so, you know, it's really a survive on your own. And if you find that you have some kind of weird ability, then, you know, work at it as best you can. But there's no mentors to, to guide you because it's so new and it's so fresh. And there's so few people wandering the landscape. Gotcha. So each community would have its own, its own mythology, its own terminology. I mean, sure. you, as, you sure. ex, as you explore out into this world, who knows what the hell you're going to find. Yeah, um, and since I, since his is forbidden, his town there there wouldn't be any names for anything because none of them are allowed. Sure, to manifest they're long killed on sight. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Tell me again about Kara. Who is Kara? Is that his sister? His friend? Who is she? No, K- Kara is the the next oldest kid in the village, and and okay. this was part of the eleven pages that I cut out last night. <laughs> um, so she's she's twelve, and so he grew up completely alone. Um, you know, most of the children that were born during the apocalypse were either drowned or left to the, you know, right. They were just ditched because a crying baby draws too many of the dead and, and then you die. So, um, you know, she is the, the next oldest, but she's 12. So she, she looks up to him. She wants to impress him. She's constantly doing things that, um, that she shouldn't be. And then he has to cover for her and he gets in trouble. Okay. Okay. So kind of a, kind of a kid sister vibe, but no biology there. Okay. Right. right, Cool. I like that character a lot. Uh, uh, I love her as leverage. I love her as a spark of joy uh, in a dismal town. Uh, uh, There's there's a lot of torque, I think, that we can apply to Isaac on this. What I'd like to suggest that we explore as we move forward with this discussion, um, Isaac's arc uh, uh, is uh, he's very passive at the onset. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shit's happening to him. Uh, and it doesn't, it, it takes a really, really long time. Uh, it, it felt like for him to get agency and get involved and get engaged. Uh, and I think part of that is the, the, that we don't really have a clear antagonist or a sense of the antagonist. I know what you're saying, Brian, that the community kind of is, uh, mm-hmm. but when the story as presented, I think we need to amp that up a little bit, uh, uh, and draw some very clear lines, you know, maybe, maybe because Isaac is a bastard that nobody knows that, that Isaac is Xander's son. If we, if we decide to play that card, uh, uh, that makes him an outcast. Uh, uh I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just putting stuff out there that, sure. that I would love to see us discuss more. Um, the definition of a clear antagonist or an antagonistic vibe, uh, and something for Isaac and his arc to get him engaged more quickly in the story so that we can, we can dive in and really have him start butting heads against whatever it is that he's butting heads against so that's those are my first thoughts and my first question so let's let's move forward from here um chris back to you man and this is where we kind of go free for all so alistair chris brian myself this is at any point if something goes oh my god i've got to say this by all means do so but chris we'll, we'll hand back over the mic to you for for now what are your thoughts on this well, my approach always to workshopping something is how to get it done. And if I can't tell you how to get it done, I don't want to make suggestions. Okay. Um, 
the I, I think that I think Dave and I are of a mind that this feels like a shorter story mm-hmm. than than what you've laid out, and and it it could be sort of needlessly complex. When uh, when when you do world building, as you guys know, you can make it so complex that it's you can't get into it. And and I let me cite the characters in Game of Thrones as they have sex reciting their lineage. Um, <laughs> Uh, There's an image, you know. <laughs> you, you know, it's the complexity is not skill. It's just you know making the Legos stick to a bigger and and to to a bigger structure that that can get out of hand. I would look for your models, and I do this in my own work. I would look for your models of of sort of dystopian work that's short. Look at Anthem. I mean, it, right. God help me for for. Uh, Referencing it, it, Rand. Ayn Rand, holy smokes! Well, no, that that's good because I I teach it every year because <laughs> yeah, I'm a it, high school teacher, and and there's no world building there, right? Um, right. There's very little world building in 1984. You know, you can get it done without a com- a massive complexity. Um, for all the things that isn't the thing that Hunger Games does work in is that they she you're in that world. It doesn't require a lot of backstory. And and you're engaged in the in the, um, you're engaged in the agenda of the characters early on. So, to that end, and to the how of doing that is, I would definitely de-darken it. I, I agree with Alistair on this. Is I would not have it be a zombie world. A plague world makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And one of the things yeah. that happen, especially given what your your underlying sort of model of the Pied Piper of Hamlin is, in any, um low population post-apocalyptic world children are going to be of a very high value in a dystopian society in a in a in a plague world a zombie world whatever i would not to make the dark force of the circus coming to town uh a la something wicked um you want your norm should be less dark it does it can be Heinous, dubious. Uh, you know, it can un- the underlying infrastructure of the uh, of, uh, and and sort of Byzantine workings of this of the town council um, is is a a trope that works and would work for your story. But uh, you know, in an isolated sort of fortress like uh, community, your biggest problem, I, I think, you could address it by saying there was a plague and all this sort of layering of dead flesh that you, that you have in your initial concept would be we are the ones who are the carriers um in other words we may have the disease but there's some something killing us and children who are born with it are say you can make it if you want to make it dark enough that they have to kill them they manifest it at age four or five or you know puberty i don't care there are actually quite a number of diseases that don't manifest until puberty. Okay. So that's there is a precedent in reality for that. But but start with this world of this carrion world, then having a dead circus is not that big a deal. So you could have it be a, a little more of an agrarian society that's just sort of they're getting by and there's some dark shit that led to this sort of medieval agrarian society where again children are valued because you need the workforce, which is, you know, to this day in countries like Mexico, uh, that's a big deal. You got to have twelve kids because somebody's got to work. Um, right. Yeah. 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 So 
I would yeah. suggest that, and then your your the de- the line- uh, the delineation of your apps becomes a little bit easier because you have sort of the major circus going there, and and these manifest magical abilities. I think rather than having it be sort of a race of you know every other person's an X Men, I think it should be really extraordinary that these people have this ability, and maybe Isaac, uh, you know, sees something manifest in himself, or and, and I think you've sort of hinted at how it, it reveals itself to him, because um, maybe he burns the dead children, I don't know what weird shit he has to do, but <laughs> uh, Hunger Games, she did a really good job of setting you up for um, Katniss's concern over her little sister. The whole thing is this altruistic... I've got to protect my little sister. And I think you've got that that relationship set up with uh, with, with his Yeah, with Kara. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but the parallel will be drawn. I think that you can simplify it by not having so many layers of, of death and just this is the world we live in. It's Nebraska present day, except there's a gate and walls and and uh and and you, you don't have a this sort of undefinable infrastructure of magic that you have to constantly, you know, it should be a big fucking deal that these people have. Um, and there should only be, and maybe the only people who have ever had powers are Isaac and, and uh, Jezebel. And is Isaac his name? Or now that we've decided Xander. this is Xander. Xander I'm sorry. Um, Xander and, and, Maybe these are the only three. I mean, maybe complete revelation. You know, the 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 light side of the coin is is Jezebel. Um, mm-hmm. God, not only is there someone else who knows what I'm going through, but she's hot. Um, right. Right. <laughs> you know, my final sort of broad strokes. You know, rewrite of it would be the kids got to save the day at the end. You can't. Right. That right. be the end. That you know. The this is. I, I would agree. You, you're that's commun- that's a commercial death sentence, and I know we don't talk about that. We're talking about craft, but let's also talk about what's satisfying. Yeah, and and yeah. what you're doing with your contract with the reader is giving them a satisfying end. You can point toward, and then all the children were gone, including his little friend Kara. Um, you can point to that. We can think right up until the last page. That's what's going to happen, but that is that cannot be what happens. You cannot end that story that way or you're fucked. <laughs> there you go. The adage in, in Hollywood, you can't kill the dog. I mean, you can, but no one will ever go see your movie again. There will be consequences. Uh, <laughs> there right. will be consequences. Yeah, so so I would I would make that as dire as you want. The, make the emergency of the third act as dire as you want to make it. Okay. Um, and I think the dead circus being an illusion should be... Uh, it should be the dead event. It, you know, I, it's not a zombie circus in a zombie world. It's, well, it is, oh my God, it's a huge revelation that this kid knows that these things are dead. And right. it, let, let, let me ask circus. this, and, and then I want to I turn it back over to Alistair for, for some thoughts. But Brian, what is yeah. Xander's endgame here? What is, what is he doing with this circus? What, is, what purpose does the circus serve in, in Xander's context? What's he going to do with, these, with this, this pound of flesh? Well, I think it's it's about exacting revenge and and receiving what is rightfully his. Um, and so I, after he leaves New Hamlin, I have no idea where 
you know what he's planning to do next All yet right. we need we need some of that we, there, yeah. there needs to be something on the other side of that right. to, to make and that work okay the the other thing too and i don't know if i if i got this across yet or not but um nobody has seen a zombie for 17 years um so Back when Xander, you know, rid the town of them and all of that. It's it's like the the apocalypse is gone. It's 17 years later. Nobody has seen any of this. And so when the circus comes to town, it's almost a um, a, a curiosity of, uh, especially for the kids, after having heard about the dead hmm. advance man, that they've never seen this. They've only heard stories about it. And that's one of the original lures. And and the story, we're not, we, that whole backstory of Xander uh, being betrayed by the town and his wife being burned and blah blah blah. That's all mm-hmm. backstory, right? We don't right. we don't jump right. into this until no. Isaac is twelve years old, fifteen years old, whatever. Yeah, seventeen. Yeah, seventeen. Okay, very cool. All right, Alistair, back to you. Lots of discussion already. Uh, uh, some cool ideas. Where 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 has that frothing thing on the top of your shoulders taken you, sir? <laughs> Um, it's taken me to, to somewhere that it, it has actually taken me a couple of times before, but it, it may still be of relevance. I, I agree with Christopher completely in that I, it's a fantastic story. There's a really, really interesting through line to it. But you don't don't pull the molly in me. Don't don't kill the dog. You know, <laughs> just just as, as a random aside, absolutely true. There was a, a viral campaign on release of that movie where someone went around the movie posters in, I think in particular L.A., and spray-painted, the dog dies. On it. <laughs> God. The thing is, though, you can do a couple of really interesting things here, uh, in particular with, with the ending, and in particular with raising the stakes to a certain point, and giving Isaac agency, because that's, from my, my point of view, that's really the one problem you've got here. There's some stuff here which needs fixing, but it's a short story or a novella or a novel. It always needs fixing. <laughs> the, the one problem that you've potentially got is things happen to Isaac for a very long time instead of him making things happen. Right. And one of the possible hacks that you could look at for that is you have him in a position of absolute power at the end. You have him be given a choice. He can either plug into Xander's Endgame or he can stand with the town. And you can do this in such a way that instantly this kid, who's a little bit of an outsider already, suddenly becomes the most important thing in the town, which forces him them to grow and, you know, is an interesting dramatic reversal. Or you have him have the opportunity to do something for Xander and be rewarded for that with the world, with leaving the town and going off and doing whatever the hell he wants to do. Or it's implied, of course, perhaps just working for Xander for the rest of his natural life. Regardless, from my point of view, there almost has to be a Faustian element to Xander to make him work and to give Isaac something to push against. Xander seems to me to fit a a role which sits quite comfortably halfway between the Fonz and the Devil. Hmm. He's cool. He's from the outside world. He knows stuff. He's been places that Isaac isn't even allowed to read about. But he wants him to do things. Things which could potentially damage the town, but might not. And you could play very effectively, I think, with the idea of Xander, and indeed, as Christopher said, all the people who have talents, as just this huge agent of change. And change is always good and always hurts. And that's 
one way of giving an almost passive kind of agency to Isaac in your final act that basically you present him with two buttons and you ask him which one he wants to press. Well, and the challenge there as well is, is the, the nature of Isaac's gift uh, that Brian has infused him with is brilliant, is, is ultimately a destructive power. It is a power that tears down dreams for all intents and purposes. Exactly. Which, which gives him a wonderful opportunity just in terms of, again, that arc of, you know, here he is, he's Kara's uh, 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 knight in shining armor. He's the hero. He's probably lots of fun. He entertains her. Um, maybe, maybe Brian, maybe he's, uh, uh, like you say, he's always getting in trouble or at least covering for Kara. Um, if, if he has, you know, let, let's go ahead and, bring out that theater a little more strongly. Maybe he is a theater person. Maybe, maybe he's an actor uh, uh, and, and an entertainer within the town. Uh, uh, and so he fosters illusions without the use of power, um, which sets up some wonderful irony then at the end when it's realized that his ultimate gift, his ultimate contribution to the world is the tearing down of dreams, not mm-hmm. the fostering thereof. Um, and, and, and I'm just kind of riffing at this point. I'm really not sure where I'm going with it, but, uh, uh, giving, setting Xander up to be the antithesis of what he ultimately is, uh, uh, is, is I think a good first start in terms of creating that friction, that grind that, that, that gives that strikes sparks and maybe gets an idea going somewhere. I don't know. What do you think? Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think there are a lot of good ideas and I think that, um, what what Alistair was talking about, it took me uh, you know a few minutes to finish writing notes and process it. But <laughs> I, I totally agree with everything that you guys are throwing out. Okay, Chris, what were you going to say? I was going to say that that what Alistair opened up, and I think that it's it's very you know it's almost fundamentally important that your characters are making choices based on their agenda, and the choices in in this kind of story are almost always between convention and the new. And, and you know, that, that was a, a good point. And that ultimately, uh, an and interesting aside, I think that giving uh, Alistair's quote is, is, is that Xander is somewhere between the, the devil and the Fonz. <laughs> the devil is the Fonz. You know, that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the problem throughout history, throughout literary history, is the devil's always more interesting than God. You know, Milton was was lambasted for that when he wrote Paradise Lost because the devil was much more interesting than God, um, and and much more charming. And that's what makes a great antagonist is somebody that you're not quite sure if you're on that guy's side. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the really great bad guys, that, uh, you know, through time they're not all dark you there's got to be times where you go oh yeah he's very cool i want to hang out with him you know and 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 you know we've all known women that are like I, but he had a gun in the glove compartment i had to go out with him um <laughs> you know but i i think i think that's a good thing to consider once you put it into the hands of the characters then a lot of this world build, building is going to is going to solve itself um I you know I don't I don't want to act like we've set the course for it. I think undarkening it and taking up you know all the carrion or li- limiting the carrion might not I, that might be what you have to do. I think it's just too much rotting flesh to do mm-hmm. it otherwise. But but once you get into the hands of this is what Kara wants, this is what 
Xander wants, this is what Isaac wants. And, and by the way, you have to know that, but the reader can just be wondering about that. You know, you as the writer can right. go, I, you have to know what their agenda is, even if the character themselves don't. And, but the big mystery can be, what does the Xander guy want? And we may not know until the last page. It's like, dude, not only am I your father, Luke, but they took away my wife or my, the girl that was Kara's age that I loved when I was that age. I mean, it could go back that far that he's repeated, this is how his um, journey went with the village. And yeah. suddenly, bad guys' rationale for for thought was just malevolence is not that at all. But in fact, sort of, you guys took away, you know, my potential. Yeah, you know, and right. now, and now Isaac is faced with a very similar question, you know, or, or maybe you know what the best scenario is. I don't know which of these evils or what part of these evils I have to to adopt maybe i have to create a new reality which is i think what alistair was talking about and and yeah. that is not an unconventional way of dealing with a story like that but i think once you put it into the hands of the characters and start asking yourself what do the characters want and and what to what will they are they willing to do to get that um mm-hmm. it's going to all the infrastructure of the story much more easy and much much simpler yeah um and you, that's what you want to go i i mean, the tendency is to really layer on levels of complexity but you know it it can be done without that and and if if you can do it without that then it gives you that much more drama you know because you're sure. never stopping to explain shit and and that's what you don't want to have to do right brian are you seeing this as a standalone story or are you seeing this as part of a, a larger arc um the more that i play with it the more that i think you know, if if he doesn't go with the circus at the end, he definitely chases after them, and there's more to it. Um, so I, you know, I can see this going a little bit further than just a, a one story. Okay, but but and I, I guess I'm I guess the question that I have is, you know, if it ends in a period or an ellipse, uh-huh. uh, uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a different story one way or another, and and. You know, if it's a period, then we really we need to lock everything down and and self-contain this thing so that the audience doesn't feel like. But 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 there's all this other shit out here. What's going on? So all of the talk of of degoring it and and localizing and focusing it in that makes perfect perfect sense. If it's a dot dot dot, then you know the the hints, the illusions, you know, not to go in the exact opposite direction of what you were just saying, Chris. Um, but but hinting at least to the possibility of complexity outside of that uh, uh, and the allure of, of a larger game at play, but not at the, not at the expense of a good story within the context of this, this piece. Am I rambling right. or is that making sense? No, that no, makes kill- sense. Okay. That makes that- sense. Okay. Still, you don't worry about that. You, you know, the, the story can resolve itself and you can still go on if you need to. Right. I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I, I sort of always endeavor to to create a world that in which we get a piece of it. We see a piece of it, but we as, I assume that it goes on afterwards. And you know, I, and and not to be too self-referential, but I, I'm always asked, you know, why do you have repeating characters that walk from one book into another? Oh God, why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, why you wouldn't is it completely freaks out people in Hollywood because um, yeah. they're like. 
want to own everything you've ever touched back to the beginning of time. But I, I don't want to go down that road too far. But but just to to draw an underline under saying that it can end in both a period and an ellipse. You know, it can end yeah. in. But that's right. another story. You don't. You only have to resolve the conflict that you set up for this novel. It doesn't mean that that world can't go on if a publisher says. Oh, this is awesome, Brian. You know, where the next two? And you're like, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I remember one of our guests at one point had said uh, something to the effect of, you know, you know that you have done your job when your story has a, a solid resolution, but in the minds of your readers, they can continue the story. Yeah. You know, that's and I think that's kind of what I want to do with this is that it, it can go on but it it has a solid enough resolution that it can stand on its own yeah if you do your character work your, your characters that's what they, they want to know what happens to isaac what happens to carol what happens to jezebel what happens to xander well that's and, what you know, and that's you know. a question that i've got you know and and we're running out of time so i can't ask the question i'm going to ask it anyway because it's my freaking show and i can that's do right. that if i want to but uh jezebel where the hell did she come from do you know where jezebel comes from what her story is no, I I see her as somebody that that Xander kind of picks up along along his travels before yeah. he, you know. Yeah. See, I see. I see. Okay, we're running out of time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take us one more time around the table, uh, uh, and and just some some closing thoughts, closing ideas, closing wrap ups. Um, uh, and I'm actually gonna sing us how we just broken every convention we've always done in in this show, <laughs> which is just awesome. Anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and continue that trend and i'm gonna lead us off because i never do i always wait until the end so i can just say yes what everyone else said is brilliant well done well done <laughs> uh no I'm gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna blaze this trail right now and i'm i'm doing dave brian here's what i'm seeing i'm seeing um i'm, I'm seeing a world outside I'm, I, there's a, there's a three-layer world here and we're in the middle layer um, and that Isaac's town is in what once was the wastelands or the dead zone or, or as Alistair proposed, like the penal colony or, or I forget if it was Chris or Alistair, somebody was saying that this place where this story is taking place is the bad place where people are sent uh, uh, when they're corrupted, when they're evil, when they're tainted. Um, but that was years and years, generations ago that that happened. So here we are in this middle zone. There's an outer zone from whence the bad people that were banished came from. This, by its very nature, is a good place, or at least a better place, a place that has enough going for it that we can send our evil, tainted people to the middle dark place where our story is taking place. But beyond the the middle dark place is the even darker place, the source of all darkness, the evil from whence the the, the bombs and the virus and the dead and the the evil things of the world came from. Uh, and that's behind us. So we've got this three-tiered sort of hierarchy rocking us. Now, Xander, the, the story for Xander is beautiful. It's gorgeous. I love it. Yes, I can save you. I will do this. He does. He's betrayed. He goes out into the world. And he is doomed. He's going to die. Uh, uh, he's, he's, his, his, he lost his wife. He sees her burned before him. He's consumed with hate and rage. And he finds Jezebel, and Jezebel transforms him somehow. Uh, 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 awakens hope, awakens dreams in that fragile sort of illusory, oh my God, there's nothing here. It's all cotton candy bullshit. But... Through that cotton candy bullshit, Xander sees a greater hope, a greater possibility. So he's gone around this middle zone and found all of these other communities out there that are just like this. His the, the community from whence he came. 
uh, and so he has come back. He has a plan. He is going to uh, 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 break down the middle ground, reseize the bright ground. I don't know, destroy the dark. I don't know. He's got a plan uh, of unification, of destruction, of purity, of change, uh, coyote, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, but in order to do that, he has to start here. He has to get his son. He has to do this. So really kind of Xander's kind of our, our, our secondary pro tag on this thing because he's got a goal. Uh, and then if we lead off with uh, 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 something, somebody coming in uh, uh, that, that awakens Isaac to uh, the notion of his father, of, of that there's something bigger out there, you know, with his little theater pantomime thing that he's doing, uh, 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 then suddenly he can wake up and say, there's more out there and I've got to do something about that. <sighs> okay. That's all I got. That's, that's, that's those, that, those are my, <laughs> those are my closing thoughts. Just, just some world building hoo-ha, but, but I like the idea of Jezebel transforming Xander, Xander having a goal, whether it's a good goal or not, I don't know. Uh, and maybe the audience doesn't need to know either, but then having him come in and be that agent of change that, that forces Isaac as, as was put out to make a choice one way or another and to go forward from there. That's all I've got. Uh, uh, Al- <laughs> Alistair, what do you got, sir, for final thoughts for Brian? Holy crap. I'm going to shut up now. The final thoughts really, for me, it comes down to making a good ending of it. And I think you've got all the components that, that you need here. Yeah. And I keep coming back to the idea that these people of power are weapons in and of themselves and not in that kind of X many speed lines punching the ground kind of way, but immense weapons for change. Yes. And that's how you give Isaac agency. He gets to decide what change he instigates. He doesn't get to decide to not instigate change. And Dave's point about Xander being this tremendously vital, kind of very intellectually engaged guy is is a really, really interesting one. I mean, the, the, the metaphor which brings instantly to mind is two roads you could take him and two roads you could take what Xander's plan is. Is he Martin Luther King or is he Malcolm X? Ooh, yes. Nice. Right, right. yeah. And I think that central conflict is, or even if it's a central conflict, is the thing which, the st- for me, the story revolves around. I'm fascinated to see where that goes, and I'm fascinated yeah. to see what you do with it. Because you have the potential to do something here that YA, if that's the, the target that you're shooting for, excels at, which is gray areas, moral ambiguity, moments where you're not quite sure who to root for and where you can decide who to root for. And I'm really excited to see what you do with it. I, I love I cool. love that. I love that idea of, of yeah. Xander, us, even the readers, not knowing is Xander a good guy or a bad guy and not knowing how to root uh, uh, Isaac. Go, go, be with your father. No, wait, fight your father. No, who knows? Oh, that's fucking brilliant. I love that. Chris, what do you got, my friend? Closing thoughts for, for Brian as we move forward? Well, I, I think that what Alistair said is, is, is sort of set off in me the idea of um, what Isaac sort of, or, or what Xander sort of can represent, and that is um, we've sort of uh, agreed or it was set up that these are isolated communities. We don't even know if there are other communities, and that is what tends to happen in, in times of plague, and you can define plague as you want, sure. is that we put up the walls and not one of us becomes our, our mantra. And, and if you have an intellectual curiosity with Isaac, um, then all of a sudden the, the library and the internet arrives. A guy who can travel between communities. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yes. 
And, and this is, you know, David Brin explores this in The Postman. You know, the guy finds a postman's uniform, and because everybody trusts the postman, all these isolated communities will let him in. Well, the circus is the same thing. It's like, well, no, we don't have any contact with anybody else, not one of us, not one of us, but it's the circus. <laughs> and, you know, the title tells you that's sort of what this book is about, is the arrival of the circus, information. The outside world has come to us, and the only agent of that information and change is this guy with who was able to put together a circus for whatever reason. It, it sort of, it, 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 I'm being very sort of allegorical in how I'm talking about it, but I think it, when you, the more structure that can be invisible to the audience, but you have it in your, in your tool bag as a, as a writer, the mm. better. So chapters yeah. are, are built for writers, not readers. And the same thing goes with, with metaphorical structure too. You know, they, your reader can never, you can read Gulliver's Travels as a children's story and never get any of the satire that's going on in it. And that's right, fine. Exactly. You know, right, and, right. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's what I would look at. And, and that's sort of playing off of what Alistair said is, as these guys being agents of change. And it's also, you know, agents of change always fight against agents of status quo. And status quo is generally built on fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this case, xenophobia, fear of the outside. So, so um, you know, I, I would, you know, in closing, <laughs> work with your characters, make it a character-generated piece. Um, you don't have to tell everybody's agenda, but but uh, you having that thematic agenda um, is going to guide you when you get lost in where you're going to go next to finish the story. And... Um, and I would make the 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 resolution of it more satis- satisfying. You can't have the children let off. I mean, there's there's two ways of doing this. There's Moses leads the children into the promised land, um, or you know, I've the Pied Piper of Hamelin, you know, leads them into the pit of you know, sweathouse labor or whatever wherever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so the and and. Basically, a device that you can work with is we don't know. Is is Xander uh, leading them into the promised land? Is he Moses, or is he the Pied Piper? You know, yeah. Yeah. What, what is this guy? And that's going to make a much more interesting story. I quite yeah. agree. You, you've got a lot of mojo to play with there, Brian. Hell yes! Holy crap! So, gentlemen, uh, I, I must call this 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 awesome game to a close. Uh, uh, though clearly, we could keep going. Um, Brian, you know the you know the rules, man. Uh, you publish this thing, you put it out there, you you yep. EPUB it, whatever. You come back, we will. I I, I will knight you. I will be alone. Or maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll have Alistair and, and Chris come back, and we'll all just freaking hold you down and, and beat you with a sword. But regardless, <laughs> you will, you will be a knight of the round table, sir. That is the rule and the deal. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That was that was badass. Uh, Alistair Stewart, Christopher Moore, gentlemen, I, I cannot thank you enough uh, yes. uh, for stepping up and and helping us on this very momentous occasion of of one of us actually workshopping our story. Uh, you guys both brought the wonderful aesthetic that you bring to the to the table, and I think I think we I think Brian's head exploded at one point, which is, which uh-huh. is awesome. Uh, uh, Pick up the pieces. That's right. That's right. But Alistair, thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. 
and and Christopher Moore uh, uh, awesomeness from every corner. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. It was fun. <laughs> it was. It was good times. Good times. And as long as we're slinging gratitude around, we gotta we gotta send some out to the to the potosphere itself to those those wonderful listeners who hit the play button week after week. Thank you so much. This this doesn't happen without you guys. You complete the circuit for us. Otherwise, we're just shouting in the dark, and nobody wants that. Uh, so, well, now here's the deal. We're all sitting here going, holy crap. That was a lot of stuff. Poor Brian is going to be sitting. Here. He's already got writer's cramp. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's done in, but, uh, you know, in just a couple of days, here's the wonder, the amazement, like the Phoenix rising from the ashes. We started all over again, more awesome guest hosts coming up and bringing their awesome mojo to the table, more courageous guest writers, creative and courageous souls coming forward with their story ideas more literary gold to be mined and shared with all uh, but that is still just a couple of days away so uh, you know dear friends there's so many things that you can do to, to pay it forward and spread the word about the round table uh, Brian what do you think they should be doing that would be a, their best use of their time well, I, I think that there's three things that they need to do. One is go listen to a few Pseudopod episodes. Another is <laughs> grab your favorite Christopher Moore book and dig into it. And then uh, when your brain is is nothing but mud after all of that, um, go ahead and sit down and, and write. Yes, absolutely. Once once your once your brain matter has been seasoned and tenderized by that awesomeness, you will be ready to write. Uh, That's right. So, and dear friends, I will tell you, you find what you're looking for as always. So if you look for awesome stuff, you look you look for top shelf blue label goodness, dear friends, you will find it. I guarantee it. Uh, we will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast, or you can send us an email at thetable.com at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.